Can everybody hear me? It's a privilege to be in front of you. Um, about to preach God's word. Uh, it's a blessing. Um, let's pray. One more time. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for being here today. Um, I pray, Father God, that you would, uh, like my brother said, that you would use me, Father, um, as your microphone today to speak to the hearts and the minds and uh, through the ears of your people, Lord. Uh, we pray, Father God, that you would have a word for all of us, Lord. Uh, one that will help us uh, to turn from sin and to trust in you more. Uh, yeah, Lord, forgive us of any sins that we've committed in words, thoughts, deeds, sins of omission or commission, Lord. We ask for forgiveness for right now. And, Father, we just ask that you would uh, magnify yourself, Lord. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would um, sanctify us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite movies from back in the day is Back to the Future. It's actually a, a movie trilogy that came out in the 80s. Anybody seen it? Raise your hand if you've seen Back to the Future. Okay. Uh, it's a classic um, for those that, y'all, that haven't seen it. It's about a guy named Marty McFly who is thrown back into the past when an experiment by his wacky scientist friend, Doc Brown, goes haywire. Uh, and he ends up traveling through time in a car called a DeLorean and gets stuck in the past. And now he's trying to get, now he's trying to figure out how he is going to get back to the future. That's why it's called Back to the Future. Marty is trying to get back to the future. So in light of that movie, I thought it would be helpful if before we start in our passage today, that we jump in our spiritual DeLorean, which is the word of God, and take a trip back in time and maneuver our way back to the future, to our present scripture passage that I'm preaching today. And so, let's go back, y'all. Let's take a trip back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, everything started with God. Before it was anything, it was God. Uh, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God made everything, and of course, that everything included human beings. And so God made human beings after his own image. Genesis 1.27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see right there that God created man and female and he blessed them and gave them dominion over everything. Sound good so far, right? And God, uh, verse 131, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Um, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God right here, he's showing his authority over mankind. He put this particular tree in the garden and he said, yeah, I'm giving you dominion over everything, but this tree right here, this is mine. Don't eat it. If you eat it, you're surely going to die. It will be like us telling our children, yeah, this is your house, but uh, that TV in my bedroom, don't touch it. If you touch it, there's going to be some consequences. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying that he is the one over Adam and Eve and everybody. So when the woman... Uh, we're going to skip to Genesis chapter 3, 6, and 8. Uh, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the, both, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happened here is it was a, it was a snake that uh, tempted um, Adam and Eve, and they, they disobeyed God. They ate the fruit, and now we see where sin has entered the picture because now, you know, they're covering themselves with fig leaves and loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Um, and man has been hiding ever since. We have been hiding from the presence of God because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Sin has passed through the world. And we are all infected by sin. Um, and so if you ever read the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, to me, is one of the saddest chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, it's one of the places in the scriptures where we see clearly the effects of sin. In Adam, y'all, we all die. Genesis chapter 5. Just going to scroll through this real quick. Uh, this, is Rick, this is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. Let's skip down to verse 8. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Enosh, 905 years, and then he died. Kenan, 910, and he died. Mahalalel, 895 years, and he died. Jerd, 962 years, he died. Enoch lived 365 years, uh, then one day he disappeared because God took him. Uh, Methuselah, 969 years, and he died. Lamech died. 
Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth all died. And so we start out with that beautiful story about God creating this beautiful land, this beautiful garden, and, and giving it to his people. And then we jump over to chapter 5, we see death, death reigning. Death is reigning and reigning. And so this is the effects of sin. Sin is like, y'all heard me say this before, it's like the first transmitted disease that everyone who was ever born since has been affected by. I think the uh, great theologian R.C. Sproul said it best. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Let me, in Paul-like fashion, quote one of the artists from uh, my day, uh, the notorious B.I.G. He says, born sinners, the opposite of a winner. I remember when I ate sardines for dinner. And so right there, Biggie is acknowledging that he is a born sinner. We all are born sinners. We all are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. All of us, except for one. Let's go to Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis chapter 3, we, we got the fall of man. But within that fall, it's the first mention of some good news. So I'm going to read Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, so he's talking symbolic. And so if y'all can picture this, here's this serpent that he's talking to. And he's saying, basically, uh, this foot is going to crush the serpent's head. And underneath his foot, that heel, that serpent's head is going to bruise his heel. And so this was symbolic of what God was promising with Jesus Christ. This is the first, this verse is the first promise of redemption in Scripture, the first promise of a redeemer, the first promise of a savior. And from here on, through the rest of the Old Testament, you will read scriptures that are filled with types, symbols, prophecies, and promises, all pointing to the good news of the coming of the Lord Jesus the Christ. And so let's look at some of those scriptures before we, we get to our, our scripture that we're preaching today. Uh, let's start with Abraham. Actually, we're going to look at a, a New Testament scripture uh, that's given an account about uh, a situation that happened in the Old Testament. So Hebrews 11, uh, 17 through 19. Uh, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so basically, God told Abraham, I'm going to test you to see if you're truly faithful to me. Uh, I want you to kill your only son. Now, God wasn't going to allow him to kill him, but he was testing Abraham. And uh, the story, Abraham took his son, and he pulled out the dagger, and right before he was about to strike him, the Lord stopped him and uh, pointed his attention to a ram that was in a bush that would be a substitute for Isaac. And so this was symbolic of what the Lord was going to do with Jesus Christ, that he would be our substitute. But look at this verse, uh, uh, and it's crazy, because 
here you have uh, Abraham reasoning in his head what God was going to do. So um, he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in Abraham's head, Isaac was already dead. He was going to take his head off with that dagger. And he had reasoned in his head, if I do this, I know God will raise him back up. Who that sound like? Who do we know who was raised back up? Jesus. And so, again, it's pointing to something greater than Isaac and Abraham. Um, let's look at Moses, who was a great prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is God talking to Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And so we know we had many prophets after Moses. So someone might say, how do we know that this scripture is talking about Jesus? And so he said a prophet like Moses. Moses is the only other prophet who was able to mediate a covenant between God and his people. The only other person that will mediate a covenant with God and his people is Jesus Christ. And so that's how Moses was like Jesus. And so God is promising Moses right here that he was going to raise up a prophet that will be like himself. Um, so we got Abraham, we got Moses. Uh, let's, let's take a look in David, um, Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so right there, David was king of all of Israel. And so he's writing, the Lord says to my Lord. So who is David's Lord? Right here, Jesus will actually use the scripture later on to, to show the people that he was, in fact, the Lord. And so, let's go to Isaiah. So we went to Abraham, we went to uh, Moses, we went to David. And so you see all these writings that people were reading should have been uh, in their mind thinking, man, we can't wait till this person on the scene who's being prophesied, we can't wait till he hit the scene. We're anticipating them hitting the scene. And so Isaiah... Uh, who was a prophet, um, read chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah is saying that uh, it's going to be a son given and the government is going to be on his shoulders and his name is going to be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and his throne is going to be forever. Who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. But here's the, here's the key. 
Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ ever entered the scene. 700 years before Christ was born. And so these are the scriptures continually pointing to the coming of this Messiah. One more from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, which is actually one of my favorite chapters. So I, I just want y'all to, to like lean in and kind of listen to what he's saying. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And it's for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the enemy and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions of intercession for the transgression. 700 years before Christ was even born, you have Isaiah prophesying, letting, letting all the uh, people of God know who was coming. Which brings us to the book that we're going to uh, dig in today, the Gospel of Luke. Gospel, again, means good news. And the good news that Luke is telling is the same good news we should be encouraging our brothers and sisters with. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promises, points to, and teaches. Luke also understands that his writings will be of major use for evangelism. Uh, if you don't believe me, let's, take, let's uh, check out Luke's words in Luke. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here Luke himself explains the purpose for what he, is, what he is writing. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here's Luke writing to his boy, Theophilus. He's like, man, let me write to my boy and tell him so he will be encouraged in the things he already know. So that's why Luke is writing this gospel, to basically encourage uh, Theophilus in the gospel. Um, but before we get to our passage, we have one more pit stop. Remember, we're still in that DeLorean, y'all. So we got one more pit stop before we get to the passage that I'm going to preach through today. Uh, let's look at Luke 2, 25 through 35. Uh, before I... Uh, um, wrote this sermon, I asked a lot of people, because like I said, I, I, was, I had just watched uh, Back to the Future, and it just had my mind going, and I called some people up. I asked my wife even, too, uh, if you could be born at any time and uh, in, in any place, where would it be? And my wife, she said, uh, you know, Harlem Renaissance. She would love to have lived during that era. She really liked the culture and everything like that. Uh, I was thinking about the same thing. For me, it would have been uh, the 70s, right before rap music hit the scene and right before uh, technology really boomed in a different manner. I would have loved to be, have been right there. Um, and then I asked a few people, and, and uh, I think Brock and a few other people said they would have loved to have been born uh, before slavery in, in West Africa. To, to really experience that. Um, and let's read the passage that we're about to read right now. Um, Luke 2, 25 through 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so I was, I, when I read this, I was like, you know, out of all the p things people said, nobody really said they would have loved to live in the time when Jesus was walking the earth. But this is Simeon. He's like, man, Lord, don't let me die until I see your salvation. Man, that's some faith there, right? That he wanted to, to be in a time when Jesus would come so he could see his salvation. And so it, it had me thinking. I think the... Uh, the best time that any of us could live is the time we're living in right now because it's the time that's been appointed to us by God. So none of us are here by chance. You know, y'all might have came because somebody invited you or whatever, <laughs> but, 
But y'all are here for a reason because the Lord wanted you here. And so, which brings us finally to the passage we're going to preach today, that I'm going to preach today, Luke 7, 36 through 50. Let's read that. Uh, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with with her hair. You gave me no kiss. And from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I titled this sermon, Two Sinners and the Savior. As this passage of scripture is about two sinners and the Savior, (laughs) Uh, let us discern who is who. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Uh, So, you know, I know most people in here probably know who the Pharisees are, but for those that don't, who might be listening on the podcast or might be somebody in here who don't know who the Pharisees are. Uh, they was an influential religious sect within Judaism in the time of Christ and the early church. In the Gospels, the Pharisees are often presented as hypocritical and proud opponents of Jesus. Jesus is often critiqued by the Pharisees, and in turn, he rebukes them for their errant ways. Um, In Matthew 21, 1 through 5, Jesus, while talking to his disciples, gave them what I believe is, uh, gave the Pharisees what I believe is a huge compliment. But then he comes along with an even bigger diss track. So he goes ether on them. Y'all remember Nas went on Jay-Z? That's how, how Jesus went on the Pharisees in this verse. So, um... 
He says, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so practice and observe everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy burdensome loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. All, the de- all their deeds are done for men to see. So he says, listen to them, but he says, don't follow what they do because they don't even uh, practice what they preach, right? So Jesus did this a couple of times with the Pharisees and, and Matthew. Uh, in Matthew 23, 15, he did something similar. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So he said, man, y'all, y'all do some big things in evangelism. Y'all be going across the planet to reach people. But then y'all turn them in more than uh, two times the devil that y'all already are. So they do good in evangelism, but, you know, uh, give you one more. Matthew 23, 23 says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tied men and deal and coming and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness these you ought to have done without neglecting the others you blind guys straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel so here they are they pay their tithes right which is a good thing but they neglect the weightier matters like justice mercy and faithfulness so let's get back to our passage so i just wanted to introduce y'all to who the pharisees so y'all see what kind of that we're dealing with. Luke 7.37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of ointment. So we got the Pharisee, we got this woman, we got Jesus. Um, and the text calls her a woman of the city, which simply means she was a roundaway girl, meaning everybody would have known who she was, right? Everybody knew her. She was a woman of the city. Um, uh, the scripture also calls her a sinner, uh, which some commentary suggests that she probably was, because uh, the kids here, she probably was um, doing some stuff she wasn't supposed to be doing out in the street, right? Um, now, the scripture doesn't say that she was, but, you know, regardless, uh, in the text, she was more more known by her sin, because it doesn't even mention her name. So this woman is known by her sin. All right. But somehow this woman got word that Jesus will be chilling at this Pharisee's house and decides to bring Jesus a gift, an alabaster flask of ointment. Uh, alabaster was a precious stone commonly used by people in that day to carry expensive perfumes and ointments. Uh, Luke 7:38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So she walks into uh, this Pharisee's house and basically starts crying at Jesus' feet. Uh, This woman displays her brokenness before Jesus. She doesn't come to him to inspect or question him. She comes to him weeping, sobbing, 
crying hard to the point she is soaking his feet, so much to the point that his feet need to be dried. And in in great humility on her knees, she dries his feet with her hair and doesn't stop there. She begins to kiss his feet. Oh, and remember that expensive ointment she brought in? She uses it to anoint his feet. Y'all know what she's doing. She is worshiping him. I remember back in the day when people would uh, go to Michael Jackson, when Michael Jackson was at his peak and folk would come in contact with him and they would cry, pass out, and just just from seeing him or, or Mike touching them. Michael Jackson was their idol, and they were worshiping him, responding to his greatness with awe and adoration. Well, this woman isn't worshiping an idol. She is worshiping the one whom we read about earlier, whom the scriptures have foretold about. She is worshiping the one that everyone should have been worshiping. She is worshiping her Lord, seeing through his veil and understanding who he is, seeing past his humanity and seeing God wrapped in human flesh, understanding her need and speaking to Jesus a love language he would have been quite familiar with and will later on in the passage respond to. So I'm reminded of the the scripture that uh, Josh read earlier in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 212. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verse 39. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. So, so notice again, the Pharisee who had invited him, said, he said to himself, he didn't say this out loud. He said this to himself, right? He said that under his breath that Jesus is not even a prophet because if he was a prophet, he wouldn't be allowing this woman who is a sinner to touch him. This guy turns into a reductionist who reduces Jesus to being being even less than a prophet. But we know because of what we read earlier that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the one who who we will see in in these very verses has the power to forgive sins. And notice how the Pharisee identifies this woman, not as a fellow image bearer, but identifies her by her sin. All of this only shows that this joker has an inflated view of himself. He's like, man, Jesus shouldn't even be letting that woman touch him. He's like one of them guys like, oh, don't touch me. That's the attitude that he's displaying. This forces me to ask the question, how many Pharisees do we have among us? Don't raise your hands, but how many of us religious folk, oh my bad, should I say spiritual folk, has this smug, puffed up attitude? Just recently, at one of our sister churches, a very popular Christian renounced his faith. Instead of crying out to the Lord, for this man's soul, 
you got folks spending a lot of time online debating was he ever saved or not. Y'all know what the scriptures say. We know knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Come on, people of God, let's search our hearts. How many of us, if we were back then, would only see Jesus' humanity and not see him as God? How many of us, if we was back then, wouldn't have seen Jesus as God? I'll tell you how many. Without the Holy Spirit, all of us. If not for the grace of God, like the old folks said, where would we be? Luke 7, 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So what Jesus is saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to show you how much of a prophet I am. By answering a question you didn't even ask out loud. Remember, Simon said this in himself. You asked in yourself. Instead of playing Simon says, Jesus is like, let's answer Simon's thoughts. Simon is like, teacher, go ahead. Luke 7, 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which of them will love him more? So a denarii is equivalent to a, a day's wage back then. So one denarii would have been a one day's work. Um, so 50 denarii is probably about a month and a half of wages. 500 denarii is about a year and a half of wages. So in Jesus' parable, you have a money lender and two debtors. The debtors are in debt to the money lender, and the money lender forgives both their debt. And Jesus asked the question, who do you think is going to love him more? Now, the parable is a spiritual story with basically one main point. And so Jesus' main point that he's trying to make is he's addressing this woman situation, because this is the stuff that Simon was kind of thinking in his heart that he didn't speak. Uh, so Simon answers in Luke 7:43, uh, um, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Simon basically like, where are you going with this, Jesus? Uh, Jesus tells Simon, he has judged rightly. Luke 7:44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So Jesus contrasts the dismissive and hospitable attitude and actions of Simon with the love shown to him by the woman, only known by her sin soon to be known by the forgiveness that God is going to grant her. Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So a question for all you Bible scholars. 
Which sins of the woman did Jesus forgive? Sins of prostitution? Sins of the past? Nope. He forgave all her sins. Sexual sins, sins of the past, sins of the future, all her sins. Y'all say all of them? All of them. We should all see the costliness of our sins. Our sins, our sin comes with an expensive debt, a debt that we are incapable of paying, whether you're a prostitute or a woman who sleeps or a person who sleeps with prostitutes, whether you are a video star or a person who watches illicit videos, whether you grew up a thug or you grew up going to church all your life. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We are all born with the same problem. We all need our sins forgiven. We all need our sins forgiven. If you minimize your sins, just like this Pharisee, you will not show gratitude to whom it is due, and you will rob yourself of the privilege of having your sins forgiven. The actions of this Pharisee, Simon, shows exactly what's in his heart. And his actions confirm that he has rejected the purpose and person of God the Son. Luke 7, 48. And he said to her, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This should be the greatest desire of all of us to hear our Lord tell us our sins are forgiven. Luke 7, 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Question for all my Bible scholars. Has Jesus went to the cross yet in this verse? No. How is he able to forgive sins? He's able to forgive sins because Jesus is God, equal with the Father, the promised Messiah, the one who is even able to forgive sins. Look at John chapter 5 real quick, verses 21 through 24. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. See, that Pharisee, he didn't give no honor to Jesus. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So that's what we're seeing with this young lady. So let's look at Luke 49, that, that last sentence again. Uh, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not just any faith saved her, but faith in the person of Jesus Christ. No longer is she characterized by her sin, 
but now she is known by the forgiveness that was granted to her. So if you uh, got a modern-day Bible, you'll see that passage. It'll say right in the little heading, the forgiven woman. By, in it, by Jesus' interaction with this woman, we see that Jesus, the Lord, shows he is a friend and savior of sinners. So if you are in this room or listening on audio, there are only two types of people in this world. Those who have their sins forgiven and those who haven't. Only two types of people in this world. Those who have their sins forgiven and those who haven't. I pray everyone within the sound of my voice will recognize and worship Jesus who is the Savior who forgives sins and sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you again. I pray that everyone, Father God, who hears this message will repent of their sins and put all their trust in you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect sinless life that none of us could, that died on the cross and rose on the third day, Lord. And we pray, Father God, that you continue to pour out your gifts of faith and repentance, Lord, that we might turn from any wicked thing, Lord, and run to you, putting all our trust in you. Help us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.